0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, hello. I get how maybe friendship might not seem like the most pressing, psychological, contemplative, or geopolitical issue. Yeah, yeah, I have enough friends. I'm doing fine. Just teach me how to meditate, Harris. If that is your attitude, just know that a guy named the Buddha disagreed. There's a whole passage in the Buddhist scriptures or suttas about friendship with seven strategies for friendship, some of which we're going to discuss today. There's also a famous story where one of the Buddha's disciples came to him after a fascinating Dharma discussion with some buddies and exclaimed... Friendship is 50% of the path. The Buddha corrected him and said, No, it's 100% of the path. These, by the way, are not exact translations. Anyway, friendship was super important to the Buddha, but it is clearly a dying art. The number of close friendships that Americans have has declined over the past decades. In 1990, 33% of Americans said they had 10 or more friends. In 2021, that is down to 13%. In 1993, percent said they had no friends. Now it's up to 12%. My guest today is Kate Johnson. She's a former modern dancer who's been meditating for more than 20 years. She's a graduate of Spirit Rock's four-year teacher training program. She's the author of a new book that has drawn praise from some of the people whose names longtime listeners might recognize, including Lama Rod Owens, Jack Kornfield, and Ruth King. The book is called Radical Friendship, and in it, and in this conversation, Kate draws on an ancient text known as the Mita Sutta to offer actionable strategies for realness, generosity, and other key ingredients for friendship. We talk about some of the Buddha's specific strategies, including give what is hard to give and the other challenges of generosity, do what is hard to do, and keeping secrets. We talk about what Kate means by a relational practice and what that looks like in real life, We talk about what friendship has to do with enlightenment or liberation and how radical friendship can have societal ramifications. Before we dive in, one exciting order of business. Meditation can often seem like a solitary practice. In the movies, when you see a character meditating, they're often sitting alone on a mountaintop wearing loincloth, wind blowing through their hair. My colleague, the meditation teacher Matthew Hepburn, says meditation is in fact a team sport. Matthew has spent considerable time studying many millennia's worth of ancient wisdom teachings in community with other people. Now he's here to help you learn how to make those teachings work for you by launching a new show, a new podcast, where he coaches meditators through real-life struggles. His new show is called 20% Happier. On each episode of the podcast, you listen in on an intimate conversation between Matthew and a guest. Unlike on this show, the guests are not gurus. They're lay people, rank and file meditators. They meditate, yes, but their lives are probably a lot closer to yours than, say, the Dalai Lama's. Matthew helps each guest unpack what's going on in their practice, where they feel stuck, what's working or not working, thus leading them toward moments of insight that can really transform their lives and hopefully yours as you listen in. I call this mindful eavesdropping. You're going to learn from Matthew and his mentees how to understand what is happening in your mind and what you're supposed to do about it. The 20% Happier podcast is available exclusively in the 10% Happier app. So to listen to 20% Happier, download the 10% Happier app wherever you get your apps and then tap on the podcasts tab at the bottom of your screen. I know that's a lot of math, but I think you can figure it out. Anyway, we'll get started with Kate Johnson right after this. third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans plan features may vary credits stop if you cancel or change plans kate johnson welcome to the show
1: thank you so much for having me dan it's a pleasure
0: likewise so Give me a sense of why and how you came to this subject of friendship.
1: Friendship is something I really care about. It's something I've always appreciated in my life. It's something that I've messed up at several times, you know, and learned from those mistakes, hopefully. And it's something that I was really excited to discover is actually an essential part of the the Buddhist path that I love so much and that I entered into through the doorway of meditation. I guess I started thinking about friendship as a topic for this book. In response to my experience in uh, Buddhist meditation centers, where we were trying hard to, to think about how to respond to social justice issues and to become better, the word that we were using at the time, allies, to racial justice issues, to environmental justice campaigns, and even getting approached by labor organizers, kind of asking about you know, what would it look like for Buddhist meditators to show up en masse to support social justice issues in the way that we have, for example, Black churches showing up in the state capital to rally on behalf of you know, labor, for example. And so there was this desire to harness the energy that we were spending cultivating wisdom and cultivating compassion and turn it towards moving those principles into action. And at the same time, we were having some difficulty both internally in those communities, like showing up for one another in a really intimate and authentic way. And then also some concern about, you know, what does it look like for a predominantly white, predominantly privileged Buddhist meditation or mindfulness space to to show up for people who didn't look like that and have that experience? And how can we do that in a way that wouldn't then replicate some of the harm that has happened, you know, in terms of the causes and conditions that brought this <laughs> wealth gap and racism about. So in that search for you know, how do we do this well? How do we do this better? and How do we create the kind of authentic and meaningful relationships that we want to have both within the community and also between communities, this this Buddhist teaching on spiritual friendship seemed like a really amazing clue, you know, on how we might, might do that um, with some really fantastic pointers about, what friendship means in a practical, everyday sense, and elevating the status, I think, of friendship beyond a nice-to-have kind of relationship to an essential relationship and one that can really move us forward on our path to liberation, you know, both individually and and collectively.
0: I was surprised in my early investigations of Buddhism to see how much there is about friendship as well, because as you said, it does kind of seem like a nice-to-have, maybe even sort of slightly whimsical subject but uh, the buddha took it very seriously do you
1: remember like what struck you about that or what when, on your learning about the buddhist path you came across those teachings
0: the thing he said to his right hand man slash cousin ananda came to him and said i'm paraphrasing here i don't think i'm gonna get the. I'm. i don't think i'm gonna get the exact quotes here, but something like, hey, I just had this great conversation. It was awesome. It struck me, Ananda said to the Buddha, that friendship is like half the path. And the Buddha said, no, it's 100% of the path.
1: 100%, yeah. Yeah, that was one that uh, really moved me too. And one that felt mysterious, you know, like, what do you mean It's the, whole, the holy path? Like, I thought it was meditating in ever greater, <laughs> ever longer minutes of sessions, you know, and that would be progress. That teaching is something that also maybe curious about the potential of friendship. I think it becomes even more important to me now where I'm at in life as a parent of a young kid. And I feel like my, the length of my own meditation sessions dwindles and dwindles and dwindles You know, these days. And so any opportunity to practice in a way that's relational is oh, just, I'm so grateful those, for those opportunities because it's really what I have now. And I, I know that many people can relate to that too.
0: So what does that look like when you say to practice in a way that's relational? What does that mean when the rubber hits the road?
1: Ultimately, I think it means that every encounter with another being could be an opportunity to practice. And I love that you say when the rubber meets the road because I think there's a a way that it's maybe easier to understand that conceptually. And there are many ways in the dharma world that we point to that way of practicing or understanding, you know, there's this Many phrases are coming to mind as I imagine that every being you meet could be your mother or was your mother in a past life, you know. There's the notion that anyone we meet could be our teacher. And it's our job to figure out how. There's the teaching on the three jewels, you know, the the three areas of refuge that the Buddha offered us, places where we can find comfort and support um, when things feel um, confusing or hard. And one is, of course, the Buddha, the ideal of awakening, and the other is the dharma, the teachings themselves. And then there's the sangha, which is the community of practitioners. And depending on how we look at it, that could also include everybody. I think what it means is that it's possible to utilize and expand upon the qualities that we develop in our meditation practice, including mindfulness of the body, including awareness of thoughts and emotions as they're arising including wise reflection and that it's possible also to use the values that we have as kind of navigation systems or compasses when we're relating with another human being so if we prioritize and we value patience if we value generosity we value truthfulness that in the cornucopia of you know sensations and experiences and emotions that can guide us, especially when things feel difficult. Relationships, you know, they're beautiful and they're enrich my life. And they're also sometimes hard. And when they get hard, that's the moment where I find it hard to practice. That's the moment where I don't feel my body. That's the moment where I forget that I know how to center myself. Uh, I, I, I'm i laughing because my brother um, just moved to Philly and he was very fond of doing something that he knew would irritate me. And then when I got a rise out of me, he'd be like, oh, I thought you're a meditation teacher, you know, like... <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's, it's easy in a moment of being really in with another person to forget that we have access to all these tools. So I think, I think that's what it means is that we can be in the practice of intentionally remembering.
0: It's not uncommon, at least in my experience too, for the moments where you need the practice the most, you forget to do it.
1: Yeah, I know. I feel that way too. I feel like I didn't just start practicing, but I'm also like, I don't think my journey's by any means done, you know, in terms of my own practice. But I will say one of the ways that I, I feel myself maturing on the path is that I was going to say bring more and more into the Dharma. But I think what I mean is like allow the Dharma to expand and, and hold more and more of my experience. And I know that really on my path, it was more of a, a superficial relationship where I, I started doing meditations centers in part because I wanted to meet other people who meditated, you know, and I thought that meditators were, were cool and would want to be friends with them actually. And I know that earlier on I related to my meditation practice and my, even going to Buddhist retreats, almost like an accessory, you know, it was like having a nice handbag or like a cool pair of shoes. Like it it was something that helped me feel self-esteem and almost look good to myself. Right. But it wasn't something that you mentioned when the rubber hits the road or when, you know, when I really, really needed it, I had this tendency to think, okay, I'm going to handle this myself. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) the Dharma can handle, you know, the smaller problems, but this big one, like I got to figure this out on my own, you know, and I think the longer I practice, the more, the less that makes sense. And the more I think in moments of being really confused or really hurt or really angry or really sad, I notice more and more willingness and ability to say, and may I see this moment as dharma? I think when, when that happens in relationship, I think that's a radical friendship move, you know, to have the confidence that there is something to learn here. Am I willing to use my awareness to mine this experience for ways to become more free and to grow?
0: You use the term radical friendship, which I know is the title of the book. Can you define that at least as as you define it?
1: Yeah, the book is really based on the, the Buddhist teachings of spiritual friendship, Kalyanamita. The reason why I called it radical friendship is really because of what I see as the, the implication of practicing this kind of friendship in our modern world. That there's something about the commitment to show up for our own and another person's liberation that is, um has a potential to help us grow not only spiritually, but I think also socially and politically. And the hope that that kind of friendship is the kind that could help us really bridge differences in a way that could allow us to stay together long enough to affect like truly radical social change. And I think it's also the way that to practice these principles inside of a relationship might allow us to feel what it's like to be free together and to have this mini experience of collective liberation, even though We're not there yet. (laughs) I don't think any of us could look around our world and say like, this is a world that is truly free and is liberated from greed, hatred, and delusion that is, you know, had the obstacles to our true nature as human beings and our true humanity removed so that, you know, it's just, we're not there. (laughs) We're not there yet. And I think it's radical that we might, inside of our relationships, develop liberated spaces where we can feel what it might be like, but on a small scale, And I think that that feeling can also be a compass, can also be a way to navigate all of the conditions that would have to come into place for us to have that sense of liberation be more widespread in terms of policy and culture and things of that nature.
0: So it's not just about a, a practice that might be good for your own spiritual development and maybe even good for the well-being of the people around you. You see this as something that ladders up to helping us have a more just society.
1: I hope so. I think so. I think it's worth a try. I, mean, <laughs> I And I had this discussion with a Dharma friend who, we were just kind of calling the question, is it true that the Buddhist teachings about how we work with our own mind ladder up, as you say, or scale up in a way that could inform how we think of how society gets liberated? And there's something in me that says, yes, I think there's an information for us there. I think it's probably not the only thing that we need, but... Yeah, I think it's worth a try.
0: Much more of my conversation with Kate Johnson right after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at quints.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home, and I wanna look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I wanna be comfortable, and uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good-looking stuff, at low prices, not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier.
2: We're driven by the search for better.
0: You mentioned before the Mita Sutta, this section of the Buddhist scriptures where the Buddha talks about friendship in great detail. And I I know within there, there are seven strategies that you elaborate upon in the book, chapter by chapter. I'd love to start tackling some of these so people get a sense of from moment to moment, how can you actually do what you're talking about?
1: Cool. Let's get practical and tactical.
0: Practical and tactical, <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's, actually, that's a big part of what we try to do here. The first strategy is give what is hard to give. That doesn't sound like a ton of fun, but tell us what you think the Buddha meant and where you go with it in your own mind as you contemplate it.
1: To me, it points to the, the teachings on generosity, of which there are also many in the Dharma in which the, you know, the Buddha is said to have taught people even before meditation as the practice of generosity, because it, it helps liberate the clinging mind when we give. And I think that part of what this is also saying is that we can also act our way into (laughs) the right state of mind by giving what's a little bit difficult for us to give or getting at the edge of our comfort zone. In the book, I talk about three of my own kind of hard to gives because the Buddha doesn't say, doesn't tell us what that is for us. He, I think, is encouraging us to consider what's true for each of us. So I talk about money, giving of resources and as a practice, I talk about uh, time, giving time, taking time and how we might relate to that as a spiritual practice also with our friends. And I talk about the giving of unconditional love in the form of attention. It's not a limited resource like the other two, but it can feel like that, (laughs) you know?
0: Those three are, are ones you've struggled with personally?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Listen, with money... For me, often it's just not feeling like I have enough. And uh, certainly I have, you know, more than most folks when you look at, you know, the grand scheme of things. And also there are a lot of people who are really visible to me who have much more. It's hard because I haven't talked about this. So I'm just going to like talk about it and think it through at the same time. <laughs> but I was talking to a amazing organizer who I really admire and she was asking me my, my rates, what I charge to work with organizations. And so I gave her a rate. And then I said, but look, I really want to work with your organization. So whatever you guys can do is, is awesome, is fine for me. And she was like, do not say that ever again.
0: <laughs> I was just going to say that too. Don't I was like, what do
1: again. you mean? Yeah. She was, I was like, well, you know, it's worth it to me. There's a lot of value in working with you. And she said, Kate, she was like, you and I are Black women. People feel entitled to our labor, She's like, let other people enter the gift economy first. We'll bring up the rear. (laughs) I was like, oh God, you know.
0: I think that she did you a solid there. She did you a service. And I'm glad she said that because it was the first thought that came to my mind. In the mentoring work that I have the good fortune to do, mostly within the journalism world, a lot of my mentees are women. And it's the type of thing I hear women, whether they're women of color or not, say quite frequently the phrase that often comes to mind for me is a book that was written by Mika Brzezinski, who's the co-host of Morning oh, Joe yeah. on MSNBC. And she wrote a book called Know Your Value for Women about negotiating their salaries and negotiating the workplace generally. I once had it pointed out to me that the modern workplace was created by men for mm-hmm. men. And so I think knowing your value is just incredibly important.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the practice of uh, generosity is both you know, giving and receiving and knowing when which is appropriate. One of my aspirations is to be able to give like 10% of my income to people on causes I really care about. And that uh, is kind of a stand-in for, I guess what people used to do, or some people still do for churches or other places of worship. There's just set aside 10% to give to their spiritual community. In terms of time and the giving of time, I think... You know, it's so related to money, especially in like a you know, hyper capitalist society, right? Yeah, it's another resource I often feel like I don't have enough of. And yeah, I just, I think so many people that I meet feel that way, you know, like I ask how someone is and they're like, I'm so busy, you know? And I saw a meme on social media the other day that said adulthood is saying things are really slow down next week, every week, forever, <laughs> for the rest of your life, you know? I feel a lot of grief, actually, even in this moment, just thinking about the the frenzy of activity that can be a day and how dehumanizing it is, you know, to have the day so filled with activity that even if we might be interacting with people all day long, we don't actually have the time to really, you know, ask them how they're really doing and listening to the answer. Actually, there's a, a Buddhist meditation teacher who I know and, and really admire. Her name is Maricela Gomez. And... We connected. I said, you know, oh my gosh, I'd love to talk to you again. I'm sure you're really busy, but we can find a time. You know, I I was kind of making all these excuses for her about why she wouldn't have time to talk to me. And she said, oh, I have time to talk to you. I actually set aside periods of time in my calendar just for connecting with friends. And I was like, you do? She's like, yeah, you know, that's a part of what I see as my spiritual practice is making sure I have time to connect and to just go for tea or to call on the phone. And that's her way of being a spiritual friend. So it's a practice I'm, (laughs) I wouldn't say I implement every week, but I try, you know, to keep blocks of time that are just for having fun or being together with people. And also notice when I feel the pressure of time, I feel like I don't have time to be a friend in the way that I want to be. I try to ask myself, is that really true? And then in terms of attention there's something that i think is really radical about recovering the capacity to choose where we attend you know i have a 8 month old child almost 8 month old child uh, at home and also a 12 year old and i find that for them attention really is one huge way they receive my love and i have learned that you know if one of my kids is fussing there's like some anxiety or some tension, and I am not fully present because I'm annoyed, then it just kind of continues that like low level kind of grabbiness or the you know, and if I actually am willing to just put the dish down, turn my full body towards the kid, and say, "You know, tell me again, how was that for you today <laughs> you know like really, turn my full body, it seems like they receive that and they take it in, and then they're good, you know, so that's also been a huge teaching for me. And and parenting just how simple it is actually and how it doesn't take so much time to help someone I love feel my love for them by giving them my full presence.
0: I think this rushing thing that you talked about a few minutes ago, I don't know if you used that word, but the sense of feeling time starved. I think for me that the feeling rushed and then not being attuned is in my life. That's been a huge challenge, an anecdote, and then a Maybe a useful teaching, both involving Joseph Goldstein, the great meditation teacher who was just at our house this weekend and spent the weekend at our house. And this is, as you mentioned, Monday. And he woke up Monday morning and we had breakfast together. And then he asked if I wanted to take a walk. And I did. Happily, it was great to take a walk with him. And then he got in his car to head home. And and I remember... So much of the time I was spending with him, I was thinking, well, now I'm behind. You know, I'm, I, my whole schedule for today is, is out of whack and blah, 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 blah. And it's just totally getting in the way of what an opportunity to take a walk with Joseph Goldstein. And then the teaching also comes from Joseph Goldstein, which is he often tells people – to see rushing as a kind of like mindfulness bell, as a sign to wake up during the course of the day. I've heard him say this a million times. I rarely do it, but it seems like an incredibly good teaching in the times where I have done it. It's like, oh yeah, okay, I'm rushing. Something's going on here. I am missing something. Nothing good can come of this. It's just very helpful.
1: I love that. I think that's so beautiful. Both that like you got to hang out with Joseph for a weekend and, you know, this idea of the mindfulness bell and What's the suggestion or instruction when you hear that bell when you notice like, oh, I'm rushing? What is the what do you do next?
0: Just wake up and pay attention to whatever you're paying attention, whatever's, you know, happening in your mind or in the world right now. Same purpose that a, a mindfulness bell would play on a meditation retreat, just to wake you up. You're probably missing something. And it bears directly, as you have been arguing, on the issue of friendship or your relationships to other people, because often you're too busy with the dish to turn your full body around to a 12 year old who needs your attention and not just you all of us so yeah i i found it to be helpful i have not found that i have a profound ability to apply it
1: yeah well you know comes in time but i appreciate your humility yeah i mean i think the other truth is that time is limited and precious while our days are probably filled up with stuff that isn't as meaningful as we think it is, um, or doesn't isn't as urgent as we think it is, I think that's really big. You know, like this kind of manufactured sense of urgency in the way that it keeps us kind of humming. <laughs> I heard from people who thought about getting this book and or have got it but not started reading it yet because they were like, "Well, I feel like I'm going to find out that I'm actually not that good of a friend." <laughs> And like, I don't want to feel bad about myself today. You know, like I, even the title is kind of triggering, like, oh my gosh, am I radical? Am I a radical friend? And I certainly didn't write this book so that people could like feel bad about themselves or compare themselves to somebody who's doing it better. Cause I think, I mean, on the one hand, well, we're all doing the best we can. No one's getting it perfectly right. And no one's getting it completely wrong. But I think it's true that we can't give time to everything. So there are going to be people in our lives who want our time that we just can't give it to. And then it's an opportunity to be honest. I think where it comes in as a practice, again, this goes back to attention, it's like our ability to choose, you know, are we actually making meaningful choices about how we spend our time? Are we responding to other people's sense of like urgency and demand? I think that there's something really interesting happening now on the other side of COVID. I feel like we're in A labor movement that no one's really talking about, (laughs) like, or that's not no one. That's not true that no one's talking about it. Yeah, people are saying, actually, I've managed to figure it out, and I'm not going to go back to a place that treats me like I'm not a human being.
0: Let's go back to some of these seven strategies. We won't make it through all of them, and that's why people should buy and read the book. But let's see if we can get through a few of them because I, I love talking about, and I think people really like to hear about what the Buddha taught. So the second of the seven strategies for being a, a radical friend, uh, per the Buddha, is do what is hard to do. So the first was give what is hard to give. The second is do what is hard to do. What do you make of that?
1: Again, I think the Buddha leaves us space to contemplate in our own life what 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 is hard for us to do. I think it points to, you know, just in the, the doing, uh, to a quality of wise effort, which is, of course, one of the steps on the Eightfold Path to Liberation. It's also... It's an invitation to examine both what we apply our effort towards, like what is it that I'm efforting in service of, but also what's the quality of effort that I'm bringing to that. Um, and that, that can be equally rich and rewarding, like how am I efforting? So doing what is hard to do, I think sometimes could be you know, doing more. Um, I think it could sometimes also be doing less, <laughs> you know, depending on what our proclivity and our habit patterns are. So in this section of the book, I talk about just how hard it can be to even, you know, touching the first noble truth around friendship, that sometimes friendships are hard, that they can break our hearts. And that when we look at the ways in which friendships and relationships feel unsatisfactory, we can look both at the personal reasons for that. So our own tendencies to cling and to crave uh, a certain kind of relationship or, you know, not being present, rushing, you know, like kind of, the roots of suffering that are about my own body, mind, heart system and the way that's been conditioned. But we can also look at relational patterns as a form of suffering. Um, So that kind of what happens in the space between us. And we can also look at the causes of suffering that come from systemic forces, which I think is probably the hardest to perceive. The hardest to do is to kind of see how those systemic forces are, are presenting themselves in our relationships. Because oftentimes when we have relational tension that is systemic in nature, we experience it as interpersonal. So there's this feeling of like, well, why does this person have a problem with me? There may be interpersonal reasons for that, but there's also structural reasons for that that can be coming into play, that part of our practice can be to to extend our awareness in that direction and just to see, you know, does this suffering have a systemic root? And then the third noble truth in terms of relationship, in terms of friendship, and radical friendship, I think, is a practice of daring to explore and feel into what does actually liberate a relationship feel like? You know, have, I ever, have I ever experienced what it is to be free with another person or a group of people? Um, and what does that mean for me? You know, What does it mean in terms of how I move my body? What does it mean in terms of the parts of myself that I share, the parts of myself that I keep private? you know, what does that mean in terms of the quality of laughter between us? You know, what does that mean in terms of how I support one another? So, and I think that there's some elements of freedom that we can all relate to. And I think that how we envision, how we feel free might be specific to each one of us. And part of what I, I hope this part of the book will do is help each of us to start to articulate, you know, what does that mean in terms of my own freedom and what freedom looks like within my current friendships or other relationships? And also what, it, what would a liberated community be like, you know, and to, to dare to dream that. And then the fourth noble truth is of course, um, you know, where we get practical and tactical and talk about, um, some of the, the concrete ways in which we might navigate our life in order to cultivate more freedom. So that's, that's how I interpreted doing what is hard to do hard to do doesn't mean like awful and painful and like unpleasant the entire time. You know, I think there's a like, hard to like, it can feel good to do this kind of work. And I just want to make a case for that in case anyone's feeling exhausted.
0: Much more of my conversation with Kate Johnson right after this. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre When you say you talk about the notion of a a liberated friendship, to me, that sounds a little like, I mean, attractive, but also hard to grasp. What does that mean for you? you, Have you ever tasted that? And what did it look like?
1: Well, I think one of the things that you're pointing to is like liberation can be hard to describe. (laughs) I won't say I have like any one relationship that's all liberation all the time, but I do have friendships in my life and certainly moments within my friendships where we feel free. And I've been in communities that that also have their moments of like, wow, we're in this moment. It has to do with, I think, a temporary kind of suspension of like, ill will, you know? So in moments where, what you know, what the Buddha called the three poisons are not activated. And in that suspension, there's a fullness and richness of relationship that is the natural luminosity of who we can be together as as human beings feels like it can flow, like it's unhindered. I have a close friendship with someone. We were working on a project together and um, I noticed that whenever we had kind of different ideas about the next step to take, they seemed kind of prickly, like very sensitive to, almost like when I suggested taking a different approach to the work that we were doing it seemed to me that they felt kind of personally offended by it, right? So there was this kind of like, I could see their jaw getting stiff and their their throat may get a little tight because their words felt a little like terse to me. <laughs> um, and just because of my own kind of conditioning experience, um, I wouldn't say I'm conflict averse, but I um, I really hate it when people are mad at me. And I was feeling like, oh gosh, this, I, I just wanted to avoid making this person upset or, you know, I also don't like making people feel bad. And I wasn't seeming to be able to communicate that, Hey, this is not about you. This is about, you know, having a a different idea and wanting to collaborate in this other way where we're bouncing ideas back and forth. And when I noticed that I brought another idea and this person kind of recoiled and stiffened up, I stopped, I stopped bringing my ideas. And so I kind of became like a yes person like, Oh yeah, that's great. Okay. We can do that. But I wasn't a full body. Yes. And I wasn't I wasn't bringing my whole self to the work anymore. And so as I became less engaged, they started to become a little bit more irritated. And we're just kind of caught in this this unhealthy pattern together. And one day we were in a meeting and I could feel in my body this welling up and almost felt like a pressure, you know, kind of coming from below. And, and this feeling like, I don't want to do this anymore. And um, like, how can I get out of this basically? <laughs> and this is something I wrote about a little bit on... Um, the principle of spiritual friendship of the Buddha said that when misfortune strikes, the spiritual friend won't abandon you. Um, and so this quality of like loyalty and not abandoning and really noticing the tendency in me to, when something's not feeling good, to just be like, uh, I don't want to do it. This <laughs> is not, not for me, the desire to escape. right? And so when I felt that pressure kind of rising up and my flight response kind of coming in, like, uh, how do I get out of this mess? It's just like, can I exit out of this project? And noticing that, I decided to say, hey, can we talk a little bit about how we're working together? And I did my best to center my intention to not to avoid this person being upset with me, you know, but to demonstrate my care for our relationship. And that whether or not we were able to continue to working together, that that was something that was really important to me. And they listened and they totally surprised me. It's still mysterious to me how this happened because I was really bracing for my friend to say like, "Well, I'm not going to do this with you," and I anticipated that they would be really resistant. And they were really not, and they were able to share with me some of the ways in which I was communicating that I wasn't aware of. Namely, that sometimes I have a way of communicating when I'm excited about something that makes it feel like there's not room for anyone else to to share what they're excited about. You know, I'm just like, okay, let's do this this way. You know, love it and they were also able to really take responsibility for their own reactivity. But on the other side of that conversation, there was so much more breath and there was so much more space and there was room to play and enjoy each other and our creativity there. There's room for creativity again. It was like a huge burden had been lifted. And so I think, you know, I think radical friendship can be practiced in lots of different ways. But for me, that seems to be one that's coming up often for me lately is that there's something that, I know needs to be said and I'm worried that saying it will cost me the relationship. But what I'm discovering is that if I'm honest and if I lead with love, that that doesn't have to be the case, that it doesn't have to be the end of our connection, that it can be the beginning of a like a different kind of depth with one another. Um, And and what feels like liberation for me inside of that is that um, I'm actually able to show up fully and say what I actually think, you know, um, and be real with another person, you know, hopefully not in a way that dismisses their humanity or doesn't, you know, (laughs) doesn't see them as a person too, but that I can really be myself. And I hope that makes space for them to be themselves too. And most of what I feel when I know it's happening, it's a, it's like a visceral sensation. It really feels like I suddenly had, let's like, my jaw releases. There's more space under my armpits. <laughs> it's like my my belly spreads out. Like it really feels like you know, in the Wizard of Oz, when suddenly the world becomes color again. That's what stepping into a moment of radical friendship feels like for me.
0: Yeah, it's a great description. You definitely made what could be gauzy very real.
1: I hope so. I think it takes a lot of words.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it was worth it. And it sounds like both of you guys did what was hard to do. Both of you. And then the payoff was that you were both able to be real with each other, and that redounded to the benefit of your relationship, to you as individuals, and to the benefit of the project.
1: Yeah, I know that for me, there's something. There are fewer things that feel lonelier that being in a relationship with, being in, in a space with someone else where I, I don't feel seen, I don't feel heard or known. I don't, and and I can tell they're not. They're holding back too, and certainly like there's. Kinds of relationships where it's it's a gesture of friendship to allow the relationship to develop over time. You know, you don't just meet someone for the first time and go like right to the depth of like, you're you know, exposing your deepest childhood wounding to one another. And, you know, like that would be inappropriate. <laughs> However, I feel like that's something that I would wish for myself, for all of us, and especially within like spiritual spaces where I think there can be so much pressure to perform a kind of like nothing bothers me it's all good. We're all one. You know, like this kind of placid, like benign affect. I would love for us to be able to be real with one another, even if that means being messy. Because that's what freedom feels like to me. It doesn't feel like being like, like a controlled, you know, politeness. It feels like being full, being being full in our range of expression, being full in the way we moved our bodies, being full in, you know, how we how we are, allow ourselves and each other to show up, and that there's room for that within, within what we call the spiritual world.
0: I agree. I definitely agree. In our remaining time, let's hit one more of the Buddha's principles for radical friendship. Uh, I'm going to skip down the list a little bit to something that I think is kind of intriguing, which is keep secrets. What did the Buddha mean by the keep secrets and how do you interpret that?
1: Well, the one before that is that the spiritual friend tells you their secrets and then they keep your secrets. And in this book, I, I talk about secrets, you know, not only as the details of our personal lives. And, you know, I think we started to get into this a little bit, like how I really feel, what I really think, you know, how I really am. And also the ability to expose truths about our real lived experience and about things that need to change. One of the secrets that I think often gets capped in the communities that that I'm a part of is like when we've experienced harm in some way, especially when that harm is related to, you know, abuses of power, privilege. There can be a sense of shame if we've gotten, you know, hurt. Oh, maybe I, I should have seen it coming and averted it, or you know, been tougher so that wouldn't have hurt my feelings, or been ex- been more exceptional so that it didn't affect me. Yeah. And so I think that as radical friends, keeping of secrets is like, well, how do we actually respond when someone's sharing their truth with us? And it's actually not easy sometimes to hear when someone's been hurt or especially when someone's been hurt by us, you know, that happens to be the case because, you know, we're talking about radical friendship. Of course, we care about another person. We don't want to be hurtful. We don't want to be the kind of person who hurts other people. Oftentimes it was unintentional. We didn't know. And even, we might find ourselves coming to the limits of our capacity for compassion, meaning our ability to allow our open heart to be touched by our own or someone else's suffering and to do so in a way that we can remain upright and responsive to that suffering. All of those things I, I see is in the domain of what it means to keep secrets. Um, like how is it that we receive each other's truths? How is it that we're able to listen to one another. And in that chapter, I think I talk about some common ways that we, you know, our natural capacity to receive one another, natural capacity for compassionate listening becomes hindered or blocked. So I think part of the practice is noticing where the blocks are, bringing our loving attention there and seeing if it's possible to, to dissolve them and, and return to the, the state of openness that I, I believe we're all born with.
0: Do you think the Buddha meant and do you talk about, because when I hear keep secrets, what comes to mind immediately for me is just being trustworthy, somebody that people can divulge their secrets to and and know that you won't be passing it along willy-nilly.
1: That's true. I mean, I think that's a, the, the very straightforward interpretation, you know, to be trustworthy. And I think that developing the capacity for compassionate listening is part of what makes us trustworthy, you know, like beyond knowing that we're the kind of person that's not going to blab your business all around town. Like knowing that I'm the kind of person that can actually hold whatever you're going to bring to me and that you're not too much and your life is not too much and your feelings are not too much, you know, that they're just enough and I welcome them. And again, we're all working with capacity issues. You know, can we all do that all the time for every single person? Probably not. But is it something to aspire to? And is it something we could probably do more of than we currently are if we practice? I think so. And I think what happens when we're able to better receive our friends' truths, when we're better able to hear what's important to them, what they care about, then we are better equipped to respond in a skillful and meaningful way. So when we look at the practice of radical friendship at a larger scale, at a societal scale, I think what keeping secrets, what having a practice of compassionate listening um, and deep listening can really do is allow us to listen in a way that informs our response in a way that's it's it's most effective and most meaningful. So oftentimes, you know, we, we learn about an injustice. There's this, you know, sense of like outrage. How could this be? You know, can you believe this? Like we need to do something right now. And that we need to do something right now, I think is more an expression of my own discomfort then it is a clear seeing about the, what is my unique leverage point for change here? And if I can, as the listener, as the radical friend, hear what's happening and allow it to touch me and allow it to even break my heart without making it about me (laughs) and to stay there in that moment, I think on the other side of that deep listening experience, there can be a clear seeing of what the next right move is for me that would be most useful in this moment, both in service of my friend who's you know sharing this with me and also in service of whatever community is being impacted by you know whatever this friend is sharing that there's for each of us, I believe, a right role in societal transformation, probably many right roles, you know, and deep listening, compassionate listening, receiving each other's truths in a as a practice, I think can clue us into what that is for us because we're not all going to be on the very front lines, you know, chaining ourselves to trees. And we're not all going to be, you know, on Capitol Hill lobbying for policy reform. We're not all going to be you know, in the boardroom making decisions that help people live with dignity, you know, in, the, in a business. Like, we're, we, each, we each have our own role to play. And I think that if we can learn to listen better, we can listen not only to our friends, but we can also listen into that. What is my work to do here? Um, and how can I Use my unique position in this world to generate more liberation for everyone.
0: Well said. I like to induce often not very self promotional meditation teachers to promote their books and anything, any other resources you're putting out into the world, just as a closing shot here.
1: So I wrote a book. It's called Radical Friendship Seven Ways to Love Yourself and Find Your People in an Unjust World. It's available wherever books are sold. And most of my work right now is doing stuff like this and teaching from that book. And I'm spending a lot of time taking care of my kid. So I'm not doing a whole lot of public teaching now, but I am hoping to do a longer course around um, the cultivation of radical friendship starting probably in the new year. So I'm um, thinking something like, something between like a book club and like a, a lab. and people can experiment with, practices from the book in their own lives, come back, reflect with the people who are also practicing in that way. So if you're interested in something like that, or just knowing what I'm up to, you can you can check out my website and sign up for my mailing list. And that's where um, I usually let people know, you know what's coming next.
0: Kate, thanks very much for coming on. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me. And thank you for all that you do.
0: Thanks to Kate. I should say to practice cultivating radical friendship, you can check out the related meditations for this podcast episode in the 10% Happier app. If you're listening to this podcast in the app already, just scroll down to the related section of this episode to play the meditations on friendship from Sebane Selassie, Oren J. Sofer, and Joseph Goldstein. If you're not already a subscriber, download the 10% Happier app wherever you get your apps and then click on the podcasts tab to get started. The show is made by Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant with audio engineering. From our friends over at Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus meditation from Anushka Fernandopoulos. If you like 10% happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wonderycom survey.